0: Mark Caro and welcome to episode 9 of Caro Pop. Our guest is a legend in the audio world, mastering engineer Bernie Grundman. Mastering is a term we hear associated with music recordings, but how many of us know what it actually means and how the best ones are done? We're going to find out. Bernie Grundman has been taking final album mixes and preparing them for release, mastering them, since the late 1950s. In doing so, he has shaped the soundtrack of our lives. You wouldn't think mastering engineers would become celebrities, but they are among audiophiles. People look for the BG in the dead wax of vinyl albums to know that Bernie Grundman was involved. He has mastered some of the greatest and greatest sounding recordings of all time. They include Blue, Court and Spark, and other albums by Joni Mitchell. Help me, I think I'm falling in love again. Big hits from The Carpenters.
1: We've only just begun.
0: That album in the stereo store that's always pulled out to demonstrate how great the system is, Steely Dan's Asia. Asia when all my too, I to you. Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, Thriller, and the albums that follow. This is classic albums, including that amazing run of Dirty Mind, Controversy, 1999,
1: Purple Rain, and Beyond. This is what it sounds like when it cry.
0: Super tramp albums such as Breakfast in America. I'm a winner, I'm a sinner, do you want my Dr. Dre's the Chronicle. It's like this and like that and like this and a, it's like that and like this and like that and a, it's like this, and we ain't got no love for blow. So just chill for the next episode Outcasts Speaker Box The Love Below For years, he was the in-house mastering engineer for a and Records, working with Herb Alpert and a large roster of artists. He opened Bernie Grundman Mastering in 1983 in Hollywood and has led an esteemed team of engineers, including the renowned Chris Bellman, ever since. Bernie Grundman remains the go-to guy for many high-profile reissues, including recent projects from The Doors, Pink Floyd, Joni Mitchell, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He's also done much work for the Vinyl Me Please Record Club, including its upcoming Philadelphia International Anthology Box, featuring the OJs, Billy Paul, and others. Bernie Grunman loves talking about what he does, and I loved asking him questions and hearing his answers. What sounds better, a pristine copy of an original album or one remastered on modern equipment? How much of his work is about technology and how much is about emotions and feel? What does he do when he's given a terrible sounding mix? What were Prince, Michael Jackson, Steely Dan and others like to work with? What does he think of 180 gram vinyl and colored vinyl? What does he think of CDs? His answer to that one may surprise you. And how does he protect his most important asset, his ears? Bernie Grundman also is a big fan of espresso as you'll hear at the beginning. So, pull yourself a shot, settle down with some nice speakers, set the volume at just the right level, and enjoy this conversation with Bernie Grunman.
1: Are you an espresso fan? Oh, yeah. Big time. I like espresso. Uh, my wife and I go to Italy all the time. We both speak Italian, and we, we've been there 20, 25 times. She even lived there before we were married. And uh, so, I... I kind of fell in love with, uh, Italy and the espresso, but, uh, so, you know, I have a commercial machine at home and all of that kind of stuff, but, but, uh, but I'm not, I don't overdo it. You know, it's one of those things that you have to be careful of too, but that it's, it's, a, it's a great experience if you have good espresso and that's, what's hard to find.
0: Yeah. See, I don't do espresso at home just because it's never great. Like, cause you have to get the, the, the
1: commercial machine, but you also have to get like, isn't the grind a big part of that? Gr- that the grind is the most important, I think. Yeah. See, yeah, so you need a special, really one of those good grinders and yeah, it it it's a it's a bit of a thing. But if you're someone like me who's likes to mess around with machinery like disc cutting and so forth, uh, you know, I, I get along really well with machines and, and anything like that. So it's right down my alley to to do my own stuff manually. Do you add so, milk or do you just go straight espresso? Uh, with I Well, in the morning, I have a cappuccino. Yeah. But I but I usually just drink straight espresso. If it's a good bean, if it's really a a high quality Italian espresso, uh, it's great. Uh, if, if it's done right, uh, just without anything in it. My
0: experience has, was it was when I was in Italy and when I was in uh, France, for that matter, too, the espressos there are less kind of astringent or something than they are here. And I tend to just drink them straight. And here, a lot of times there's a sort of citrusy thing going on where I'll tend to have more like a cortado or something like that with just like a little bit of milk to cut it.
1: Yeah, well, the, one of the problems is like one of the popular ones here in L.A. is Intelligentsia. Right. From Chicago. Yeah. From Chicago. Okay. Now it's impossible for me to drink that straight. It's, it's sour. It's, 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 it's got a nice big taste, but you can't drink it straight without sugar in it or some, you're a macchiato with a little uh, froth in it or something. And it makes pretty good cappuccino though, because it cuts through, it cuts through the milk taste. So, uh, but if you try to go straight on that, forget it. It's like Starbucks, too. It's like watery and bitter. And, and you know, it's like you just can't. It, it just doesn't work. A U.S. I call it American espresso. Uh, and it, it, it and, and Americans, they like a lot of sugar and, uh, cappucc- and you know a lot of froth and stuff like that. Milk and like Starbucks. I mean, uh, Starbucks puts all kinds of other things in it. Right. Uh, but if you really like coffee. You can't beat what the Italians do. They've studied this. They've they've got up to six, seven different combinations of beans in there. It has to be a blend to be really great. And they they have up to I've 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 been on the websites and stuff, and they have all these different types, allow them to have four, five, six different beans. They might be all Arabica, but they're all from all these different places in the world, which it makes it makes them all t- taste a little different when they and they refine this whole thing by combining these beans. But aside from that, there is uh, the other thing I do, you know, it's a, <laughs> kind of a sideline because <laughs> I've been, it's kind of like a sideline now because I've been doing it for 55 years. So you're a mastering engineer, you're creating
0: um, the, the master, the lacquer that that these records are all going to be pressed from. And, and what you're getting when to do this is you're getting a, a final mix of an album And, and it's, it's on tape, presumably, if it's, if it's sort of like, if we're talking about sort of back in the seventies, now it's, you know, maybe a digital file. Um, And then you're, so you're taking that and you're creating this other thing that's going to be able to be mass produced Um, in, in in simple for people who don't know what mastering is. What does that mean? Okay.
1: Well, yeah, our goal is, uh, is to try to um, connect with it with whatever we're working on. We're trying to connect with the music for one thing. And like Bruce Houdini always said, who's one of the greatest engineers ever, he said, you know, we're really here to serve serve the music. What we're really trying to do, the outcome is, is we want this music to connect as best it can to the listener. We wanna get that emotional message across to the listener. And we wanna help it do that if we can if we feel that there's something we can do that gets a a, a, it's, it's more immediate, it's a better connection. Uh, But the, that's the whole difficulty of this business is that in mastering, you're working on all kinds of different kinds of music. It can be Hawaiian music. It can be polka music. And in my seminars, I talk about this all the time because, you know, the problem is you have to be able to open yourself up emotionally and connect with whatever you're working on so that you when you start turning knobs and doing things, you have to know if you're making a a, a more immediate and better emotional connection with that music. So now you come into this thing is you can't be prejudiced. And of course, you know. And you have to be careful because, you know, when I was a, a teenager and when I was 19, I even had an, had an after hours jazz club because I'm an old bebop jazz person and classical person. Really, that's my whole background and the stuff that I'm, I'm, I like the most. But there's a lot of people like that in the music industry that admire all these great players that do jazz. But uh, and, and of course, I was a bit of a snob when I was a teenager, you know, when I was, you know, I was was this beatnik type guy. And, uh, and of course, you know, when you're a teenager, you know, everything. So you have to, you have to finally get humbled in a way. And I began to realize after I was in it for a while, when I finally got into the mainstream of mastering that, I was, I was having to really spend time with any of these projects, ones that I wasn't even aware of. But the thing is, what, what happens is, is you realize that, you know, it all has a place. And it, it all is the same thing, in a way. It, everybody has their different point of view. Uh, like I said, it could be polka music, but it's 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 still expressing that artist's emotional feeling. We all have the same emotions. So there's no reason why unless you're prejudiced, you can't connect with anything and get an idea of what might what what could you do to actually make it even a bigger experience? And when and and when
0: the, this recording sounds like Eh, I'm going to send it to you and you're going to remaster it. And then it's going to sound like it's going to be like, it's going to put, you're going to put BG in the dead wax and it'll be, you know, on discogs for
1: $400. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, the the problem with uh, all of this stuff is, you know, I mean, I've been involved with a lot of really great sounding uh, recordings and of course the object is, is to do justice for it and try to get to the public what we hear. And so it has to go through all these processes in order to be mass produced. And this is true with CDs. It's true with anything that's mass produced. Uh, So we hear the raw thing and the really the purest cleanest that it can be right off of the uh, equipment that we have. But the trick is how are we going to get this or where do we go? What, uh, what factories, they all sound different and where do you go? to try to get it as close as possible to what we're hearing and the experience that we're getting. And, uh, I've never heard it. Perfect. It, it just doesn't happen. And, and the, the goal, especially for a pressing, and at this end of it too, at the final end of it, the goal of, of coming uh, to mastering it for mass production, doing a master that's going to be replicated thousands of times, uh, requires a lot of specialized equipment we build all of our own equipment here and uh we we compare it to what other people have we compare it to what we used to have maybe if we're improving ours and it it comes down to this other aspect and that is it doesn't matter what the uh, specifications say on all of this equipment You can take two amplifiers and put them next to each other. They can have all these tests that have been made and they all test out the same and they sound entirely different because there's nothing that can test what we're hearing in complex information like music. There's nothing. Only thing that's going to tell you how good it is or how close it is to the original or whatever are your ears. That's the only way. There's no other way. You can get an idea of what a, a, a line app or a, a tape machine or whatever, of how it checks out distortion wise. But nothing can tell you what happens when there's a complex signal like music, which is extremely complex. It's full of a lot of little subtleties, like especially with acoustical instruments where you have little resonances and overtones and things that are part of the instrument. And part of the richness and the the identification of the instrument and some you might get the basic frequencies, but you might not get all of those trailing ones that that enrich the instrument, which happens all the time. And you can you can make a mistake by thinking that it's more detailed. Yeah, but it's only the primary frequencies. And this is what happens with a lot of processing that goes on. A lot of digital stuff actually sounds a little more detailed. Then if you put something on, on digital that was originally analog and it has all this richness, you put it on digital, it has less of it. So, and it sounds clearer. And, you're, and you, you first you intellectually say, oh, gosh, boy, this is really clear, clean. Uh, well, yeah, but something's missing, too.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So it, it's, uh, I've always called it a little bit of kind of like skinny sound. Because it thins out the top end usually, because that's where it doesn't sample very well. Uh, digital doesn't sample a real high frequencies very well. There's only a few pulses that that measure the the, the waveform. Uh, whereas a- all this analog stuff, there's none of that that happens. There are other losses though. I'm not saying that these other things are uh, perfect, but uh, but you know the, that's the goal though. That the goal is is that we're all struggling and if if we care, we're all struggling to get something that can other people can hear, uh that 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 captures everything that we're hearing on a really good recording. So and I I came to this because I was an audiophile. That's why I I got involved in audio way back when I was a teenager. Well right, right back when high fidelity came in. That's how far <laughs> that's how long it's been But, I mean, I was so fascinated when I first heard really good audio, and that was in the mid-50s. It was there then, and um, because it was simple. Everything's recorded in high simplicity.
0: Was there a record that you heard that was like your sort of like ear-opening, light bulb going off? Like, wow, I need to go deeper into that.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was... uh, yeah, there was. It was kind of like uh, like pop classical music. Uh, it was um, the guy that did Bugle Hol- Bugle's Holiday and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I can't think of his name, but it was it was just like kind of like a classically oriented record. It was of course it was mono in those days. Stereo records didn't come out until '58. So this was in the mid '50s, like maybe when I was probably when I was 14 or 15. And uh, I had never heard really high, high end or really I, I, I had all my dad's 78s and, and I had and LPs were coming in. and I had some of that. Uh, I had some LPs and so forth. But I didn't have a really great uh, playback system until a little bit later until I walked into that store uh, because it was the first thing I'd ever seen like that in Phoenix. Phoenix was a little town in the 50s, in the mid 50s. And uh, but uh, anything like that attracts my eye the 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 speakers a lot of hobbyists were getting into high fidelity and all the speakers were lined up on shelves or something that they were selling at this hi-fi shop and they had unfinished cabinets or you could you know do your own finishing of the cabinets or you could put it together or you could buy a finished system and i walked in there and the guy that ran the store i'm this kid right you know and i'm like drooling over all this equipment though and and he says hey do you want to hear this uh uh, oh, it's Leroy Anderson, was the composer. Leroy Anderson made a lot of pop classical things, and so it was a it was a Leroy Anderson uh, uh, recording. Anyway, he put that on, and you know these things that happen in your life that are shockingly effective and grab you to a, a depth that you never thought it, they would. And it did that to me. When I heard the sound coming out of this thing, it was like just shocking to me that you could capture that on a record. And it comes down to the fact that, you know, as good as it was, it might not be as good as it could be because it was a mass-produced item. And But, you know, you always like something until you hear something better. It's a very typical thing of anybody that's into this stuff like photography or sound or whatever. I, the speakers that I had at first, I thought they were really great until I heard the kind of speakers I use now. And then it was like, Oh no, hmm. these are definitely more realistic, more, re- they're better. But, but you know, you, it's a typical audiophile thing. And there are like, a lot
0: of people who are going to relate to that. I think on a lot of levels, but certainly with, you know, once you yeah. hear the sound sort of improve, then you're like, wait, now I need to fix this element. Wait, but now this element needs to. Yeah, stuff.
1: well, and, 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 you know, I always, I, always, I always make a joke about it because, you know, we have a lot of uh, people that are finding, you know, things wrong with test pressings. Uh, we do a lot of audiophile stuff here. And, uh, and, and these things, we're trying to make them so that they track. Cleanly, but you know vinyl is a mechanical operation, and it's uh, pretty primitive. Basically, it goes all the way back to Edison, and so you're going to get a real big moving target with vinyl because you're trying to extract a signal out of a groove mechanically. So, uh, the the thing to tell audiophiles though is if you're if if they get a test pressing and, and that you've done, it's kind of a joke, but. Uh, and they say, God, you know, those S's are splattering or they're, they're, they're distorting. And I'll say, well, God, you know, we're not getting it here. It must be your cartridge. <gasps> you know, <laughs> my cartridge, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, audio files, they're, they're suckers for it, you know? I mean, and I mean, I am too, you know, it's like, God, I got to find one better. I'm not getting everything that's on that disc. And that's why we're going to 45 RPM sometimes on these audiophile versions because, the faster it goes, the better, because the signal is all spread out. It's all, remember, you have to think of it as a, a groove that's moving past the playback stylus. And if, if these little indentations that are high frequencies in the groove walls are spread apart more, then the cartridge is going to track it better. It's going to be more faithful, the tracking. Because, and if you think about it on vinyl, uh, the, the, Uh, disk is actually changing speed. It could be 45, it could be 33, but the linear speed is changing. It's going a fourth the speed when you get toward to the label Hmm. compared to the outer edge. So that's why records always sound better the first cut. So uh, the first cut, if you just take your playback and play, uh, just drop it in the middle of the first tune, and then move it all the way to the inside cut, you'll hear a difference in quality, because You can't even reproduce the high end as well in there because the signal is so minute in the groove wall that the edge of the playback stylus won't fit in all the way. So uh, on the outer edge, it will. But, you know, the the playback stylus has to be a little bigger than what we're cutting with, than the the diamond-shaped or the the sharp edge of the cutting tool. So... uh, so the faster, the better. But of course, we can't go to like 78. You won't get any time on it. But 45s but uh, can sound really really pretty good. But we still, you know, the problem with vinyl is, is that it has limitations. Now, people don't like to hear that, but it just does. And um, you, you can put signals in there that you can't play back. You can't track it. So uh, you have to be aware of that with digital, with CDs and so forth. Uh, it is kind of what whatever you're sending it, you kind of get, except you have that little thumbprint of what digital sounds like. It has it has a sound of its own because there's a certain amount of processing that goes into the signal. But the kind of distortions you hear on discs usually aren't there on CDs. Uh, so uh, and, and almost any CD player will play it fairly well. But you take an Urban Outfitters $100 record player, you're not going to get good sound. You're not going to get those S's tracking clean, those cymbal crashes, those and on the inside cuts and stuff. In fact, you almost might be cutting a new disc when you're playing it because that playback stylus is it's mechanical. Remember, it's physical. It's in the groove. It's if you have much weight on that stylus, you're going to be it's going to hurt that record. And, and pretty soon, it's going to wipe off a lot of the top end and the cleanness of it.
0: Not only did you master Asia, you know, or Joni Mitchell's Blue, but you heard those records before they were transferred onto vinyl and lost whatever, you know, you, and you tried to, you know, Keep them from losing as much as you could, but you're hearing them in in this other state that's even oh. more pristine. So, so that's pretty nice
1: uh, experience for you, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, it was true back back then. You know, especially speaking of Joni Mitchell, those those were very um, uh, very straightforward, um, very simple recordings in a way, which is a benefit as far as getting naturalness and clean sound, um, there wasn't a lot of processing that went on. I mean, uh, and because there aren't many, there's not a lot of instrumentation or anything, you could practically go to direct to two track or direct to mono or whatever you're doing. And, uh, and all of that, the less equipment and less stuff you have in the circuit, the cleaner it's gonna be, the more it's gonna be like what comes right off of the microphones. And the microphones are pretty good, you know. Especially those—I mean, the ones that are that were popular back then are still popular now. But they're like twenty thousand dollars a piece, you know, if you want to get a good one, like some of those old Neumanns or old AKGs or any any of those that everybody really likes. That interestingly enough, when they do all these tests with tone bursts and all this stuff in these anechoic chambers and all that, the old tube. Uh, uh, microphones, uh, those ones that everybody really likes, don't really show on a graph that they're as detailed as the new ones, the new versions of those microphones, but they sure sound a lot better. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, mysterious stuff that goes on here. There are overtones and things that occur when something isn't actually perfect that we like. We actually it, 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 it actually uh, enriches the sound in, a, in an interesting way, in a good way. And um, it, it sometimes makes it sound better, better than almost being live if it's done right. Yeah, because what happens is if it gets too uh, what they consider clean, where there's no overshoot, no nothing it it'll, does square waves without any overshoot or anything like that, it can sound pretty antiseptic. It can sound pretty mechanical, the sound, uh, because you know when we really listen to an instrument, there are things going on in the room that are actually adding to your experience of that instrument. You don't have your ear against the the strings particularly, and it's almost like some of those microphones they're they're made to be a little bit further away from the instrument, and uh, and and they pick up a lot of really great stuff. Uh, so. It, it's uh, another one, another album. Let me say one another album too that I noticed that really got me b- buying a lot of, uh, of of this company's records. Those were Contemporary Records. Now, Contemporary Records did the Art Pepper meets the Rhythm Section, Sonny Rollins' Way Out West. Did a lot of very famous albums still to this day that are popular with audiophiles. They're still considered some of the best recordings ever made, and they were done in the in the 50s in the late 50s but they were done real simple direct to two track and all the um very few things in the signal path so uh so they, they they and they hold up really well today but but that's the kind of recording where it's all about the music though you know it's not i mean pop music there's, there are compromises because you're manufacturing stuff with all kinds of different elements that you're, so you have to have all these tracks and all these other things. And this all adds up to being a little less natural and less clean. So, uh, I, I, think a lot of people, um, uh, respond. I mean, you need, you, it's like two areas of, of this whole business of audio, um, and pop music, it's not all about quality. It's about a certain other experience that people want. It's almost like a different art form. It's like uh, it, it's kind of manufactured a little bit in the studio because you've got all these little sounds and things that you want to put in. You want to add this. You want to add that. It's not all happening all together a lot of times. And it's all added later. And it's like it's kind of like built by the producer, a lot of that stuff. And so uh, but all of that adds up to less quality. Because you've got all these channels and stuff. I mean, some of these things have 70 channels, and that's a lot of electronics that you're putting into this uh, 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 recording in the mix. And as good as the boards are have become, uh, you still, when you load it up with all of this electronics, you're going to hear something that's not quite as natural.
0: Can you think of an example of a an album that you heard and just loved so much that you thought, oh, I can't be objective with this one and B, one that you hated so much that you thought i just don't know what to do with this
1: well there have been some that i didn't know what to do with but some of them that i didn't know what to do with were so poorly recorded and so full of distortion that i really couldn't do anything and i actually had to send it back i haven't done that very often but i've actually had to send it back to the the engineer and i said look can't you uh Take another shot at this, you know, and, and, and see if you can clean it up a little bit. And because you've overdone it here and overdone, it, you're clipping it, you're doing this, you're doing that. Uh, I think it'll be a better experience. I try to convince them of that. But I, I you know, I have to have my opinions as well. And that's why I kind of like the interface with the artist or the producer, because I can take it in the wrong direction myself. I can make it more aggressive than they wanted it. I have to get an idea of what what are they looking for what what and that's my job then is to give them something that's going to improve what they were going after and so uh, so we're really all trying to get to the same place we're all tra- we're all trying to help each other the mixer does I do we're all trying to make this thing the best. Example of this tune, of this music, of the and the best feeling from it. The best message is, is being accessed easily by the listener, and and of course the producer and the artist probably know more than anyone about it. Of course, uh, and and just like anything else, there's almost nobody that I've ever heard of that's ever been able to record and mix something and get it exactly the way they wanted it. It it uh, there's always Anything creative like that, you never get everything that you were looking for when you started out. So, that we're trying to at least advance it closer to what they were their ideal was. They had an ideal when they started out. It's like my wife's a painter, and uh, and it's the same thing. You have this blank canvas, and you're this time I'm going to do the the most famous painting in the world. Well. You know, when you get into it, you start to run into various things that you thought you could do that you can't do, that don't work, and this and, and the same thing happens in audio. It's very complex, all of these tracks and things that people are trying to put together. So uh, so the our job though is to try to get in touch with what they're trying to do, what message they're trying to get across emotionally, and and using ourselves now, we have to. That's the only way we're gonna know for improving it. Using ourselves to, to get in touch with it emotionally so that when we do turn a knob or twist this or do that or uh, add this to it, that it does something positive for that emotional connection that everybody's looking for.
0: So you worked on Steely Dan's Asia, which is the standard go into a stereo, you know, high fidelity store. And that's the record they put on to you know, show you how wonderful the speakers sound. Uh, you know, Donald uh, Fagan, Walter Becker, Notorious Perfectionists. What is the process there? Are they sitting with you as, the, as you turn those knobs? Is it, does it come in in a state where it's so pristine you don't have to do that much? Or do you have to be extra careful because they're so
1: precise in what they want? Well, um, on that particular project, I mean, it was obvious from the start that it was recorded well and mixed well. Um, but I didn't think it was really balanced well in the spectrum. Uh, Um, they really had a lot of bass on it and they were using a small speaker and, um, and they were using a speaker that's really, it was a new, uh, German speaker that they had picked up and they wanted to hear it on that. That's what, that's what they, I think they mixed it on that. And they heard it on that. And the speaker that I had was, a a British speaker, and I still use the the Tanoy speakers, British speakers, so because I'd worked with them a while and I'd made test discs and people have taken them around and and I get feedback, and I kind of know then I get a pretty good idea of what it should sound like on those speakers. And uh, so I put the tape on and I was playing it, and I thought, you know, I told them I said, look i can't um, I can't relate to your speakers. Uh, everything sounds good. Uh, The bass is tight, the the top end is detailed. All of this, I says, you know, I don't know whether this is a good idea to listen on these speakers because I don't know whether they're really going to tell me what I need to know to get it to sound good on most players, on a lot of other players and so forth. And the interesting thing that happens is, so I did all the equalization on my speakers now, the interesting thing is when you have a speaker that's creating more detail than it's actually there and so forth, punchier bottom and all this stuff because of the way it's designed and the way it, it has, I think it, was a, it had its own power system and so forth, I don't know, to make it really accurate. That's nice. But after I got through with it, I'd done equalization and so forth, but it still sounded good on theirs. But now it sounded way better on mine. Because mine are extremely neutral. They don't give you anything. If it's not a good recording, it sounds terrible. And it's the same way here at my studio. If it's a good recording, they come to life. And that's what I'm trying to get in these things. I want these things to take you somewhere. I want these things to attract you. I want the sound, whatever sound I come up with on any of these projects, I want it to be a sound that moves people somewhere, takes them to this special place where that music resides and it's, I call it an environment and all the good mixers are, are the best mixers are that way they create a space and an environment that takes you in to this special place where you can get more intimate with the music and uh that's a that's not easy to do
0: did they hear the wisdom of your your uh, approach or was there a lot of back and forth there
1: uh, I think they've just kind of let me do what I wanted to. And then they took a test disc. Uh, and I don't think I had to do any follow-up. I don't remember it being that complicated because it was basically a very good recording. Right. Uh, it just, it, it just needed to be, um, balanced a little better. I have this with hip hop guys too, if I get them, cause they, they you know, they love bass. And it's nice in the studio, you might be able to get away with it with speakers that can handle bass. Uh, but the problem is, and they'll say, oh, don't. And I, I try to like make it a little more detailed, the bass a little tighter and so forth. Uh, because I know that when it gets out there, a lot of speakers won't handle it. And when they won't handle it, they, they're they still moving though. They're trying to handle it and they distort. And I'll tell them, I'll say, hey, you know, if I don't uh, tighten up this bottom a little bit, you won't be able to turn up your boombox, and they'll call me back the next day and say, yeah, you're right. The speakers are flapping all over the place. I can't, you know, and it messes up the sound. So there are all these little things that you learn and it's from feedback from clients too. You know, it's not that I just figured it all out, but it's through the years and experience with all these different kinds of music. Uh, That's how you learn. One of my questions I was going to ask you
0: is, 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 is whether there's a more most common sort of mistake in your mind uh, when material is being remastered or uh, remixed. And
1: my guess would have been that it would be too much bass. Well, not on old stuff, because see, uh, cutting systems couldn't handle a lot of bottom in the past. So when you get really old recordings, 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, the computers on the Lays were not... In fact, they were, for a while there, there were only very primitive computers on the cutting systems. And so you couldn't put a lot of bottom on. Uh, and you couldn't put a lot of stereo on uh, in the bottom, especially phase shift and so forth, because that, that creates a vertical cut. So you had to do a lot of protections. They knew this ahead of time, uh, the mixers. And, and they weren't really as uh, heavy-handed until we got into things like... Uh, the Brothers Johnson, or we got into Thriller. When we got into there, we were actually pushing the envelope. Uh, the computer still was not, it was better, but it, 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 we, we took a lot of chances with Thriller and with uh, Off the Wall with Michael because that had a quite a bit of punch and bottom. But that's when it really started to get uh, stronger for discs, for vinyl. Uh, way back in the... 50s and 60s and stuff, uh, and I'll I'll do some remastering on some of these recordings, and and you can see the engineer put a big filter in it on both the top end and the bottom end because the cartridges couldn't handle top end then also. They would would distort, Uh, and then you couldn't cut too loud because the cartridges, again, could not handle the dynamics and so forth. So there were a lot of limitations that were – it might not have been in the tape, but in the disc master – it showed up because they wanted to make it track well on all the players. So there were a lot of adjustments that were done to make it track better. Now, that means also, though, a loss of quality or a loss of certain areas of the frequency spectrum, especially on the high end and so forth. If, it, if, if, if you couldn't track it cleanly, they would have to either have less top end, filter it out or something like that. So that, that happened a lot. In the old recordings, and right. so we found out later that boy, when you just play these things without any of that stuff in there, right off the tape, it's fantastic. That's why a lot of these uh, archival things are are popular. But so, there are all these vinyl re-releases um, where there are
0: albums that were you, you, a. You have your albums that were analog, so you have like your your AAA, which is what everyone you know wants to see on there that it was you know analog from start to finish, and you've gone back. Uh, and done these analog, you know, we, you know, redos of them, and then you have ones where it was originally recorded in analog, but they've made a digital copy and then gone back to put it on final again. So, like, I think new the new Beatles stuff is is that, for instance, whereas the mono box was, and then you have so i guess the question is 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 the the introduction of digital anywhere in the process does that make it worse like do you need to have it aa or are there you know scenarios in which you're like no it's good to have that digital step in there
1: uh well if it's done right see that the one of the problems is is it depends on the processors the a to d's and the d to a's and i mean they all sound different they all sound some sound more natural than others uh you know, it's really, I've heard some good digital recordings. You know, that's not that I don't like digital. It's It, it can be quite good if you're careful about the equipment you're using. That signal path is so important. Um, there can be like a digital recording of something that actually has deteriorated a bit, the, the master tape. Because uh, some of the master tapes uh, seem to lose some of their quality over the years when they're like 30 years old, 40, and they'd been maybe transferred to digital way back just as a, an archival thing or just to protect them. And, uh, and sometimes, uh, that, that, that is okay. Uh, but of course, no matter what you're doing, you're never going to get the same quality of the original. Uh, there's no way you can make a copy of anything and have it come out exactly like the original that it's, I've never heard it. And, uh, and even it used to be where even with digital, you can't make a copy of a digital without hearing it either. And, and I, I have people that argue with me about it all the time. And, uh, we even had pro tools come down here. It is years ago and they wanted, they brought all their test equipment and they said, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're talking about you can't make perfect copies it's these are our same ones and zeros, and you know, all this reasoning that they come into. Yeah, theoretically hmm. they're right. But to the ear, and so there were three of us in the room, and they were switching between the original and the copy. And we picked the copy every time. And the guy was going crazy because he didn't notice it, but we could hear it. And, and he says, I don't know what you guys are hearing, but there's something going on here. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, but, but it's true. Uh, there is something that happens uh, just because of that processing and, um, and that transferring. And, but the, you know, the wires even make a difference in digital as well. Uh, when you're sending a digital signal over wires or, or it's transferring it to another hard disk or whatever you're doing, yeah, it's the same ones and zeros. It used to be when the digital was first out, sony wouldn't even talk to me at the shows they would turn their back on me because they knew i would come up and ask them well, how come i can't make a perfect copy i thought it was supposed to be perfect they they just got, couldn't stand me hmm. and so um so then later on they came out with these uh reclocking devices really what do you need that for i thought it was perfect well you know uh yeah <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it's just the same old story. You know, it's like, it's it's nice to know that it should do something. But if it doesn't, you've got to remind these people that, hey, you're not there yet. It's not perfect yet. I mean, the only thing I'm trying to point out is that they're not done. You know, you don't have something that's perfect. It's not really there. But that's okay. It has a lot of flexibility. You can do all this editing. You can do this. You can do that. That's great. But you still have to do work on the quality and trying to maintain the quality all the way to the end product.
0: Uh, Do you think a digital recording still sounds better if you transfer it back to vinyl in the end instead of leaving it on a CD or another digital format?
1: No, I don't agree with that. Because, yes, I know what they're looking for. They think that if they can just go analog, that it's going to have that old classic, really nice, warm analog sound that's a little less uh, edgy in a sense. And, and that's kind of true. If you transfer any digital signal to analog, usually because of it's a little slower analog, the, the rise time and so forth. So it does kind of soften it a little bit, but the problem is you lose detail and, and, and it muddies up the bottom and it does a lot of things that I, I don't see the point. I, I, I really don't, um, uh, unless it's really harsh and really difficult to do anything with on the digital one, maybe you could get something that, but whatever you're doing, you're going to lose quality because any copy loses quality. You're not going to get whatever quality's on that digital, even though it might have some harshness or something. Uh, it, it's, it's just, it's going to, it's going to be smearier. It's just not going to be as, 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 and, and it's hard to record, From digital to analog anyway, because uh, especially on vinyl, it's not it's not as easy because because of digital, the way it works, because it's um, the transients actually are over transient a lot of times because digital is fast because it doesn't sample very often. So it's like on and off. It's like switches being turned off and on. If you have like a guitar, uh, like an acoustical guitar, it's real clear because it has no Delay, like an analog tape machine, uh, uh, you hit that note, that real transient on a guitar, say an acoustical guitar, and on an analog machine, because of what I was saying about the heads and stuff, is it doesn't, the signal isn't immediate, or it doesn't have the rise time that the instrument actually has. It's a little bit slower. So it's actually a little more comfortable to listen to. The digital, because of its sampling, because it's low sampling for a transient like that, it's going to go from on to off or or off to on, I should say. So when that pluck of that guitar goes, it's going to be a straight line. It's not going to be be like, even like the instrument, which has a little bit of a rise time. So what's going to happen is it's going to sound ultra clear, almost like almost unnaturally clear. It'll sound like switches being turned off and on snaps. So that can be impressive in a way, intellectually. Uh, So, uh, there, There's really a really a difference there that sometimes might even help. I mean, that's that's the, the whole outcome of all of this is, is that actually sometimes you might want that. <laughs> it depends on the effect you want for the listener or for the, the artist or the producer. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just it's like no man's land here. You know, it's like, well, what are we what's going to be the thing that's going to serve the music? You know, and I t- in my seminars, I also talk about it. Don't get so drunk with technology that you got your head in the computer and you're not even listening to what you're doing to the music. Right. You know, what you're I- doing to the music is what's important. Are you really making it a better experience emotionally?
0: So I'm a member of that Vinyl Me Please uh, record club, and you've done a bunch of work for them. Um, I saw you you listed on this Philadelphia International Anthology And the the description of it says all eight albums were AAA mastered from tapes by Bernie Grundman. And I was wondering when I read that, what from tapes meant. Like, does that mean you have the original masters? Are they copies of masters? And like, like how does that work?
1: Uh, Actually, they're copies. But they're, uh, yeah, they're uh, high speed copies. They're 30 IPS copies. And uh, I'm not sure whether all of them were that way, you see, because they, they get whatever they can get. But they don't want to, they never, they don't really switch it to digital though. Because a lot of companies do that. They'll send us digital files made from the analog tapes. Because a lot of these companies now won't let their original analog tapes out there, you know, because they're, they're getting delicate maybe, or they think they're going to get lost. Because Because when we got into all this archival stuff, they found that a lot of the tapes they couldn't even find And so now a lot of the record companies won't won't release them. And so they make copies. But a lot of times they'll send us a digital file made from the tape. But not on Vinyl Me, please. Those were all analog. So
0: how so how do those sound like can can the work you're doing on that? And I'm sure that it's you know, you've got a lot of, you know, technology and knowledge of you know 2021, can you make those recordings sound better than the versions that came out in like 72,
1: 73, 75? Uh, well, you know, it's in, that's an interesting project that you, now that you mentioned that, um, you know, a lot of these tapes, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know what the original sounded like, I just did what I thought was going to work. Now, what I found out with these tapes, though, is that when they transferred them, those were Dolby A, the first Dolby system ever made, uh, a noise reduction system. And um, uh, it it's kind of gets starts getting critical about how you align everything to make it decode properly. And the thing is, I don't know what it was, but uh, if I use the Dolby A system, and we have one that's hot-rodded and everything, and it's, it's better than the original ones, it was kind of interesting. I didn't use the Dolby A the way it normally is used. I, I made it decode less than it wanted to re- decode so that that would put more life into the sound, make it much more uh, alive. I like to have a little life in things. right? And, and, and it was kind of dead sounding if you had the Dolby in. Because yeah, it, it can do that uh, on some of these old Dolby tapes. And, and I find myself uh, fooling around with the, the Dolby and how it decodes. Because the Dolby A, you can do that. With the newer, the, the one that came after that, the Dolby SR, you can't do that. You have to leave it the way it was recorded and then try to do it with equalization. But fortunately, with Adobe A was simple enough to where you could like you could kind of mess with it and and, and, and actually use it almost like an equalizer. And that's what I did on most of those from what I recall, and I, I really feel we got a nice, airy, big sound stage because of that it'll be
0: interesting to hear it because yeah, I've picked up a few of those. It actually sort of piqued my interest in, in that and I picked up a few of the originals and thought at some point I'll have to hear, you know, when these come out, you know, if there's any sort of AB comparison, just, you know, what you're, you know, what you've done now. Um, I mean, Joni Mitchell's an artist who you worked on at the time and then you've been involved and uh, Chris Bellman, your, your colleague, you guys have been involved in sort of re releasing those in that case, you when you, when you really know the, the master you know recordings and the original stuff so well will these new versions sound better than a pristine original or is it different or like what's the what's the aim there
1: yeah you know i'm i'm it's really hard to say because uh it is a whole i mean so we don't have the same signal path that we had back then we don't even have the same cutting amplifier uh so i would i would say that some things are going to be better and some things might not be. You know what I mean? It's like uh, sometimes, even if the older system was not quite as clean in certain ways, it might have added something that, like I was saying, like, just like those microphones. I don't even remember. I don't have a—I didn't compare it to any copy. I just tried to make it balanced. I tried to do the least amount of processing and, and equalization, and I tried to use my cleanest signal path that I have. And I, it should be every bit as cleaner, cleaner than the original. But, you know, we, there is some deterioration that I, I, I really hear in a lot of these old tapes. I, I, you know, because it, remember, it's, it's, it's like a representation magnetically on the tape, on the oxide. Right. And certain tapes actually kind of demagnetize themselves a little bit because uh, of all these particles that are magnetized in a certain way. And uh, it's possible that, uh, like I said, some of these things I've actually shut the Dolby off because there's some losses there that uh, you can't get back with. The, you have to almost like not use noise reduction because uh, it's become kind of muffled and kind of dull. And uh, it, it, a fast way of getting that back is to fool around with uh, how you're feeding this uh, the Dolby system. Uh, other than that, you use equalization. And that's why our equalizers, we build equalizers ourselves. And we have equalizers that go all the way out to 30,000 cycles. Now, you can't hear out there. But what it does is it creates a real wide curve that reaches down and kind of acts like a, 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 um, a, a controllable uh, tone control, in a sense, just like on your sound system that you have the, a very basic sound system, the treble control is wide, and it just opens up the whole thing. And this one, though, we start out way at 30,000 cycles, and we can come all the way down, we've got 36 frequencies. And we can come all the way down and, and keep reaching down, reaching down, reaching down until we hit the mid range or whatever we're doing. But we can kind of tailor it in such a way that we can create a sound stage that you might not, you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. That's why we built these equalizers this way because a lot of what gets lost are those subtle overtones and those reverbs and things like that. And this will bring them out without mm-hmm. making everything else bright and harsh. So, it's a special way uh, that we 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 designed these for mastering to to deal with tapes that have lost a little bit of that extreme top end and so forth. so we we find that uh, uh, restoring that gives you back that air and that that kind of effortless sound. And that's kind of what you're looking for. at least I am. I'd like to have a nice open, kind of like natural sound. But but kind of almost like exaggerated, but in a good way.
0: So, and, and Warner's recently released all of these Dire Straits albums. And oh, yeah. And Mobile, Mobile Fidelity did them fairly recently as well. Are there going to be, you know, distinct differences in the approaches being taken on
1: those two versions of these, you know, albums? Well, maybe so, because I don't know what they did. If they did uh, 45 RPM and so forth and did a lot right. of specialty things the the ones we did are just standard 33 and a third uh albums that are that have the full albums just as they were originally released at least the one i didn't work on all of them chris did on some of them i i think i only did one or two but uh but the, but they were done more like they originally were on just a regular 12 inch uh lp um so if, if Mobile Fidelity was doing a higher-speed disc, uh, it's, they should sound a little cleaner, I would think. But I, I don't know. They, they, they have a different system. I'm not sure what their approach is going to be because you know, there's a lot of things you can do in mastering that might not be good or that can be good. I mean, you can, you can, you can manipulate the sound quite a bit. And so you have to be careful of that even because you, know, you can go way out on a limb and get used to a bad sound. So you have to be careful of that, too. So um, I don't know. You'd you'd have to compare them uh, to see what the differences might be. Uh, And, you know, I'll tell you another thing that makes a big difference. It's the pressing plant. I mean, you'd be amazed at the range of sound differences that you find in in each press, uh, going from pressing plant to pressing plant. It can be dramatic. Uh, I've
0: been going into some of these online communities and I've learned so much about, oh, RTI, that's a good one. Uh, you know, this one I'm not so sure about. And, and there's, a, there's a whole, and, and this is sort of, it gets back to people knowing what you're doing as well. But there's, there's this whole dialogue now about like comparing this pressing plant to that pressing plant and GZ or MRP or uh, it just MPO. Yeah. MPL and, and, uh, oh, it's an O it's an O it's in France. MPO. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, there's a Memphis one also that was that and, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of different ones. And then the other thing is that there, people are talking about like, Oh, that's the, that's the Bernie. That's the Bernie pressing. That's the Chris Bellman. That's the, uh, you know, Kevin Gray or Ryan yeah. Smith or something like that. And I, I'm wondering if you've become aware of people sort of knowing who you are more like over the net last, I don't know.
1: 10 years, five years, something like that? Well, I think the uh, coming from the audiophile wor- world, yeah. I think, uh, well, of course, they kind of knew about me when Classic Records got in on the scene, when they started this whole thing back in the mid-90s. Uh, I was doing all of the. I did about 500 albums for them over a period of three, four years. And before it really even started crossing over to mainstream public, And it was mainly for audiophiles, and so I developed a reputation right there, because they were bringing out stuff that hadn't been out for a long time, and they and they they jumped on it. They were the first ones to get really back into re-releasing all of these uh, historically famous recordings that had both good performances and good audio. And so I was able to do a lot of things that you can't do today, and they won't let you. Is that I even had kind of blue the original three-track session tapes that I mastered directly from the three-track onto the master disc. That never been done before. And I, I mixed it myself and put my own reverb on, which was the same kind of reverb that they used because we have three of those uh, reverb units, German reverb units that they used all through the 50s and 60s. And so I was able to... Uh, compare it to what they were doing, but they mixed it down, and that's all people that only heard the regular, just the two-track uh, mix down that Columbia did. And I was able to get the uh, Hobson was able to get the original three tracks that had never been assembled. I had to assemble them into album form, and uh, EQ it the way I felt would work, and add the reverb and 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 mix it. Way I I was comparing it to the, the one that was out on the market. I didn't want to change it a lot. I just wanted to have the same kind of balance between the three channels. But uh, that's just been re released from the same metal parts at uh, Acoustic Sounds. They just released it. It um, cleaned up all the parts, all the mothers, and all that stuff. Were, we're able to, and they were in good shape. And uh, they have repressed it. I think they've pressed about 25,000 of those. And I think they're pretty much sold out. That was the one that you did. Yeah, but it, well, it's the same metal. I, I never, I, you know, the, those were mastered way back in the mid-90s. Right. I didn't have anything to do with this new release, except that I did what made that the mothers. So uh, it's funny how that can happen. But because uh, he bought all that stuff from from uh, Classic Records, he bought their presses, he bought all of the metal, you know, that that they, they had been using at RTI. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting what goes on in the background with all this stuff. That's why. I mean, look, we, we send sometimes to more than one plant because they're trying to get production. And you'd be amazed at sometimes the difference between one plant and another plant. I mean, they all have bad days, but there are some that are exceptionally good all the time, almost all the time. But it's really, it's very hard to make a disc that's perfect. It almost never happens. As I say, I looked at the dead wax of my
0: um, Joni Mitchell and it has the BG in there. And I guess it's from the Terra Haute plant as opposed to the Pittman plant and i don't know which one's supposed to be better or anything but i find it interesting that people know like this is these albums were printed at this plant or this plant and
1: people keep track of that uh, well yeah no they were different uh the, the Pittman, uh terrahout and santa maria they had a plant right. in santa maria but most of them came out of pitman and terrahout uh you know i don't i never compared them you know, I'll tell you, I've always been so busy, I almost never get to hear the test pressings. I just I get a pressing, but I'll take it home, and I don't have anything to compare to. But, uh, in fact, I almost don't have time to listen to anything at home, For and that's that's why I've, I'm kind of complaining these days. I'm saying, God, I want to spend more time just hanging out in my listening room at home. I, never...
0: <laughs> I think one of the things that can vex you know, someone... Uh, who's really into the music. Cause you end up buying these like multiple copies of albums that you own and you're like, well, are these new Pink Floyd ones better than the ones that I have? Is it, do I need to replace it? Is it different? And like, 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 how do you sort of figure out like which ones are the, like, which is the one you should own. So you're not buying like eight copies of the same record. I
1: only collect jazz records. You know, I'm, I'm, I really am a bebop jazz person and, uh, or classical, but classical is a little difficult because, you know, uh vinyl invariably has maybe a little random noises here and there, and it's kind of distracting for classical because classical has so many quiet passages. I'd rather listen to CDs a lot of times with classical because they're just quiet all the time and you don't lose your uh, concentration <laughs> when you're involved in it. <clears throat> but uh, but the, uh, but a lot of my record uh, records, yeah, they're all jazz records. That's what I listen to at home, or I listen to CDs. Because, you know, I really feel that, and I I know a lot of people think it's old technology in a way, and it is now, but, uh, you know, there's a whole generation of people that never really experienced, uh, they've they've only been streaming and, and listening to iTunes, and they really have never really spent much time with CDs. And CDs, you know, were improved through the years. As time went on, they got better and better and better. And even though they're a little little bit lower sampling rate, it's linear digital. It's not compressed digital. So I would say the best all-around format is a CD. Hmm. Because a CD is versatile. It's small. It has all the information that the LP has, has the booklet, has everybody that was involved. You can play it anywhere. You can play it at the beach, you can play it. You can't do that with vinyl. So as good as it can be, vinyl can be really great. But CDs are actually more consistent. Now, they're consistently a little less quality than the best vinyl. But you're going to have to pay $50 for a vinyl audiophile quality record. So I would only buy... If I'm not a regular buyer, of course. I can get them free. But I would rather... If I had the money, I mean, I, I would still... I wouldn't be as concerned about buying an audiophile version of a record that really isn't a great recording, and that happens. You know, I I only want the one that if it's a great recording and a, and a, and a, and, a, and it's worth it because of the sound being so spectacular, that's fine. But it, it, I usually buy for the music. I want I want the music, and and uh, I mean I even like Fats Waller, and that's out of the forties. It's not great quality, but boy. Talk about an interesting player or Art Tatum, things like that. So, you know, uh, I, I I don't I, I think I'd be careful about getting too carried away with sound quality because, you know, right. if you only think about sound quality, a lot of this stuff that are these guys put out that are marveling about how great this sax sounds and how great this, the music is crap a lot of times. It's just not good music, but it sounds great.
0: Well, it's funny because it it is a trap where I'll go on these, you know, like, I don't know, Reddit or Facebook group or something like that. and, And people will be going, oh, this new, you know, hard to get, you know, audiophile recording is so fantastic. And I'll be like, yeah, I never liked that group, though. And I'll be thinking, oh, I should get that and play it because it sounds so great. But I'm like, I don't like those songs. I don't like that band. And it's not even that it's bad. It's just sort of like some things are your cup of tea,
1: cup of tea more than others. And there'll be something where I'm like, yeah, I just I don't know that I'm going to listen to that record. Yeah, well, my primary interest is is the music, really. I mean, I'm an audiophile. Yes. But I mean, I I really it has to be good music. And and it's interesting because when I was when we were doing all these reissues with uh, Hobson on classic records in the 90s, uh, we would get. Uh, He would always have a copy of the original and he'd say, boy, this one is really rare. And it would be a very famous jazz artist that's well known, that's made a lot of great records and so forth. But this one is really rare. You know, they're paying thousand dollars for these and blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to reissue it. And I would put it up there and it wasn't very good. In other words, these were not great performances by that artist. These were not the definitive ones, the ones that really put them on the map. They were, they were okay, but that's the reason why they didn't sell well. That's why, they, why, why, <laughs> that's they why they're rare. rare. Yeah, that's why they're rare. And I'm going, well, why do I want that? You know, I don't want it just because it's rare. I had a guy come in and look at some of my collection, uh, some of them that we were reissuing anyway, and I was going to sell them Be these original ones. He was more concerned about the jacket rather than the, the disc itself. I mean, I thought, oh, really? Oh, yeah, collectors, boy, they'll go crazy over this. Look at this. It's just got it out of the store. Well, you know, (laughs) uh, that's a whole other, you know, certain collectors that, well, this one was done at the first plant that they pressed it at and then uh, for Prestige, and then this one was done at the one over in Long Island or something. I don't know. You know, it's like, oh, well, okay. Uh, But to me, I don't collect things for those reasons. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, just because also, it's rare,
0: if something will be marked down 15 bucks because the seam spl- is split on the cover, and I'm like, "Is a record played?" No, and I'm like, "Oh, that sounds good to me." It's just yeah, going, but- <laughs> <laughs> as, as, you know, if, if if it's if it's marked down because the first so- song is unplayable, and I like the first song, forget it. But if it's just that, you know, there's a little bit of roughly stuff on the seam or the inner sleeve, I'm like, "Yeah, that's okay."
1: Yeah, exactly. Now I feel the same way. And, and that's why, the only reason I said CDs are okay is that uh, they're they're very, they have what I want because as a collector of jazz records, you want that particular period of their recording. That, I mean, that the whole recording where they were at that time in their life. Uh, this particular album was done over just these three days and that's that, and it's all in one package with all of the personnel on there, a description of how the session was going or whatever, or on Keep News or something like that, maybe wrote something about it. But but you have the whole thing that the album had, that the vinyl had. It's small, but you do have all of that. And, and it's not expensive. And you have the music. And it's reasonably well done, usually, uh, uh, because they're done from those old analog tapes, a lot of them. So... Uh, and not that I don't like records, but it's records, you know, uh, hmm. they, you know, you got to get a good pressing. You got to get, I mean, it, it's a, it's a headache.
0: You worked on thriller. You get the tapes on that album and you're going to you know, make this master. Uh, did you hear it and think, wow, this is going to be like the biggest album
1: in rock history? Well, I didn't think that it would be the biggest in history, but I knew it was going to be popular. I knew it would do well. I, I mean, it was obvious that it was extremely well done. And uh, I didn't think it would be the biggest record of all time, but uh, I was very impressed with it. Now, the, thing, the interesting thing about it is off the wall, is better sound. <laughs> yeah, but that that's a that's it's pop music it's that that's not what's important here you know it, it has a lot to do with other things that's yeah, just, just the tunes and uh the way it was put together and all of those things those are what contributed to it being so successful because i think every tune on that record was a hit single practically right. Is Off the Wall just better recorded or
0: was it production decisions or what? Uh, well,
1: it has some aspects that give it a more natural uh, sound. And, and these it gets into some areas that a lot of people don't even know about. Uh, off the Wall was done at 30 IPS, which is a faster tape speed, which is better for top end. But it was also done on quarter inch tape. Now, in those days, we were also getting into half inch tape you know, which is a wider uh, signal on the, uh, the, the actual signal on the tape is, is wider, it's bigger. And so you get, it's a quieter recording because tape, you know, has a little bit of hiss, tape hiss. And a lot of people started going to the half inch and it's a little more durable. Uh, you have to be a little more careful with quarter inch, but quarter inch sounds better. And it's always been that way, and uh, and people like Alan Sides, who's a definitive audiophile of LA, we used to sit and compare. He has a studio Ocean Way, or he did, uh, and we would sit there with two really good ATR Ampex machines. One of them half inch, one of them quarter inch. We always pick the quarter inch, always. Uh, and there's a, there. I don't want to go into a, the reason why technically, but but. And it's not very American, is it? The smaller tape is better. Hmm. You'd think that God, if it's bigger, it might be better. <laughs> well, you but, think the bigger has more information on it too. So, well, I don't know about that. It's just that the track width is 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 smaller on the quarter inch, but it has to do with the impedance of the head. It has to do um, with the impedance curve of the head. It, it has it has to do with um, Some uh, various aspects like that, the drive to the head is different. The, you know, I don't want to go into it, but it's a slower medium, uh, half inch. You know, it's got a bigger, bigger, it's, you know, uh, a recording head is a a coil. It's an electromagnet is what a record head is. And it's responding to the signal electronically. And it's putting that signal, it's magnetizing the tape. And the thing about it is um, a coil in electronics, when it gets hit with a transient, like a snare drum hit or something like that, it has to develop a field to put it on the tape. It has to b- get magnetized. And there's, a coil acts like an open circuit when it first gets hit with a signal. So there's a lag time, and there's a bigger lag time with half-inch. The quarter inch is a smaller coil and it responds faster. Well, hmm. so these real subtle things way up in the high frequencies and this airy stuff and this naturalness way up high comes through better. It just does. So is, is, so is Michael
0: Jackson sitting with you or Quincy Jones as you're you know, doing no. the EQ and figuring all this stuff out? Or are they no. just like hand it off and it's just your, your business and not collaborative?
1: The engineer is with me. You know, Bruce Wedin was a pretty big part of that uh, production you know, the engineer, uh, a lot of it had to do with him, the way it was laid out, the way the, the sound stage that he created. And, and he's one of those rare engineers that can create that space and environment. I mean, those recordings, you can practically walk in there and walk around. That's how much depth it has. But at the same time, Michael's right in your face. That's not easy to do. Because reverb and echo tends to wash things out and make it sound less present. But he gets both. And that's what's fascinating about his recordings. Uh, it's just, they're just there. I mean, I don't have to do much work for him. <laughs> and Steely Dan's good, too. Those were good recordings. They, they, they created this soundstage that you could just walk around in. But I never saw Quincy or uh, Michael. Later on, in some of the later albums, Michael would come in and they would have to do little adjustments and stuff. But he would rather take a test and go home and listen to it there on a speaker that he knew uh, and then maybe have comments. But he really didn't, uh, he wasn't so hands-on in mastering. And uh, Swedeen, maybe a little bit, but no. Actually, I I think Thriller, I think I just did that myself. But it was so good. I was just trying to capture what was there right, right. it justice, you know, and, and I did do equalization and so forth, but it was like not real complicated stuff. Some things are pretty complicated and uh, you can do a lot. You, I can transform some of these recordings, some of them. It depends on the recording. It depends on what's there, what hasn't been lost, but that, that I can get back. And then you
0: got Prince also, right? And yeah, Prince. Sort of leading up around the same time, you know, between the, in that off the wall to Thriller window, you have Dirty Mind and Controversy in 1999 and then Purple Rain, which is after Thriller, but just all yeah. kind of in the same. Is he is he also just handing it off or is he sitting in there uh, telling you what he wants?
1: Prince, you know, didn't really like L.A. He didn't like the uh, record business or the music business. He didn't like people telling him what he should be doing, what he should, you know, to to be, a, you know, because a lot of these A and R departments are trying to get you to do certain things that they think are going to be successful. And Prince, you know, if you know Prince and you followed him all these years, you know that he wants, he obviously, wants to do things his way. Sure. And so he would, he might come in. Uh, and I, I started with him even on the first album that didn't wasn't a big hit. And. All he wanted to do was go through it but but he let me do what i wanted to do and uh and then he would take a reference disc and go back to minnesota and and listen to it there but he he couldn't wait to get out of l a you know he he would just and he was very quiet he was very withdrawn always he was you'd never believe it, but he would sit in the corner and he wouldn't say anything, and he might just say something like well, uh, maybe that one needs a little more bass. And that's about all he would say to me. And I'd go, well, okay, let's try it. I think it had a lot to do, especially from the start, with that monitor system that I had that nobody else could relate to. <laughs> they wouldn't know what to say because I'd get people that would come in and say, is that my recording? And I'd say, well, don't worry. You know, just take it easy and wait until you get a reference disc and all of that. And then they'd think I was like a, a genius or something, because they'd take it home and it'd be great. But I, I might not have done much. <laughs> but what they heard on my speakers, they, they were worried. Did you think those Prince albums were very well recorded? Yeah, they were good. You know, they were well recorded. Uh, they, they weren't quite as impressive as, as some of the stuff that Swedeen does on Michael. I think, I think those were. Uh, but no, Prince was Prince really had a good ear, uh, except that you know. He wasn't always on. He he sometimes even came up with mixes that were distorted. Uh, They just weren't as clean as they could be because he was, in fact, some of them came out lopsided. They were hotter on the right channel than on the left channel because he was sitting way over on the right side of the console when he was mixing it. Because he liked, what I understand, he liked to mix without looking at meters or anything. You know, he just almost like playing the console. Uh, and so I would have to correct for, you know, I'd have straighten out the, the center and, and so forth. I'd have to do some various things like that. And sometimes he'd be overloading the tape machine or overloading the, uh, the signal path. And, and there would be a little bits of distortion and stuff, but it, 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 he was okay with that. You know, it didn't necessarily bother him as much as some engineers. But, you know, the thing is, all of those records, the first maybe five out four or five albums, they were, they were so good. And they felt so good. That's one thing that Prince could do. He could just great feel in some of those things with Sheila E. and all of the that, that, that group. Uh, of course, being an old bebop jazz guy, that's what I would respond to. It's just like the first three Quincy ones with Michael. Those are the best feeling ones as far as I'm concerned. Rhythmically, the other ones got into this new thing of just slamming the snare drum as hard as you can to make it feel good and that's not what makes things feel good (laughs) it's impressive but it's not it's not it's the old adage you know like it doesn't swing necessarily but it's exciting so if you fast forward to then like Outkast
0: you know like there's the speaker box Love Below album is so that I assume that's recorded on digital technology Um, I don't know but uh, is is that uh, is working on something like that? Is is there is it a different landscape, or is it still, you know, in the realm of what you're familiar with doing? By the time you do that record,
1: uh, well, I don't know. Digital wasn't uh, that difficult to adapt to. Um, you still use we still use all the same equipment basically to do the equalization because we haven't found anything digital that we really think gives it a natural you know, a nice comfortable sound uh but uh i think that album was done i think that was analog <laughs> yeah I, I i believe so yeah a lot of those were still analog i mean i still have a lot of people that do analog um but uh i think yeah i think uh outcast was analog um But, you know, like even with Michael Jackson, B.A.D. was the first one he did digital. You know, Off the Wall and Thriller were all analog. Right. And B.A.D., if you notice, B.A.D. is very detailed, that recording, because it's digital. It was one of the first digital machines, and so it has that tightness. Uh, But it it certainly worked okay. Uh, It came out fine. Uh, But it does have a whole different, like, Personality, the sound does. Uh, do you
0: master differently for CDs?
1: Uh, well, not particularly. No, I mean uh, you do CDs. I don't have to do as much correction for for uh, the the sound uh, being uh, hard to play back. Like vinyl, like I was saying earlier, vinyl does have limitations. And so you can't load it up with too much energy in certain areas because you can't play it back well. It doesn't play back clean. And you also have to think about the quality of it as it goes toward the label because everything gets less clean when you get toward the label. So you have to be careful about not loading it up with too much energy, uh, especially as it goes toward the label. And, and, and no record player plays it as well toward the label as on the outer side, like I was saying earlier. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot more things you have to worry about with vinyl. Uh, digital, whatever you hear on the monitors, you're pretty much going to get, except it will be a little maybe edgier or whatever like digital does. But it's just kind of there. Uh, you don't have the limitations, it's just kind of a, a it's just like a sound personality, but it's not a it's, it's 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 not the kind of distortion that you would notice on a disc because a disc would splatter and and smear and uh, you would hear a, a real uh, what you're used to when it comes to distortion with a digital distortion if you ever get to that point when they're done too loud or something it only has one limitation and that's peak level so digital if you exceed the peak level ability of the equipment, it clips. It doesn't clip in the same way in in analog, but digital, if you hit the ceiling, the the maximum it'll go, it only goes so loud, a CD, you can't force it. If you you get up to zero or past zero and you start clipping, you're going to hear snaps. You're going to hear actual distortion on the digital then. And it's really, it's a little uglier than on discs or whatever, sometimes, because it's uh, it's more like a like analog. When it starts to distort, might get a little fuzzy. I call it fuzzy or sound. It gets fuzzy, whereas digital gets buzzy, because mm-hmm. it's got because those things like uh, distortion are real fast transients and is very complex. And it, and if they're clipping, it, you you hear all, all the little clippings going on, and it, it, they don't run together because of the sampling rate being low for those high frequencies for those snaps and things. So uh, you end up with this kind of like uh, static almost, uh, It's because it, you can almost count the little snaps when it's hidden in the ceiling and uh, clipping. Because what it's doing is it's just knocking, just shaving off the waveform. Whereas uh, analog is a little more forgiving that way. At least it's a little more tolerable when you get distorted. But if you go too far, then it's not tolerable in either one of them. Well,
0: I have a final question for you, but I'm going to slip in another
1: one first.
0: Uh, any quick thoughts on 180 gram vinyl or colored vinyl?
1: Well, uh, I think that the, the there is something to be said for 180 because. Uh, you know, it's a it's a, a disk that, for one thing, isn't going to transfer vibration as much. It's more dense and heavier. Uh, and a lot of times you actually get a form of feedback if your turntable is anywhere near the speakers. And you, I, I, it seems to me that you get a little less of that with a, uh, a heavier record, like 180 gram. And also they come out flatter. Uh the the 140s the old-fashioned ones if you recall a lot of those albums you pull them out of the jacket and they were warped and the outer edge would be, be bouncing around your cartridge would be bouncing around doesn't happen as much i don't think with one 180s but i usually only see the test pressings nowadays so i, I <laughs> but no they, they they should be they are a little better uh i, I think um they stay flatter they um so any of that up and down stuff that have your playback, uh, disc, you know, your playback on the outer edge, especially, which is hard to form, uh, would, would, would interfere with the quality of the sound too. Uh, in fact, if it's warped enough and your cartridge can follow it, you'll actually get a, a, a actual wow in it. It's, uh, this, the tone won't be steady. So, uh, Because you have to think about that. It's all pretty mechanical with uh, vinyl. Uh, And and that's why you can line up 10 cartridges and they'll all sound different. Right. Uh, You know, and if you, if you, maybe if you spend $20,000 on one of those really expensive moving coils, you might be able to get more of that top end out of the groove. But, uh, you know, most people that it's an expensive thing. I don't know whether you saw it, it was in the New Yorker. There was a funny ad, a, a funny cartoon, and it showed this guy explaining to his friend uh, his system. And he, there was this big audio system with speakers and amplifier and turntable and all. And he said, You know, gosh, you know, the thing that really drew me to vinyl was the inconvenience and the expense. <laughs>
0: i think a lot of people would relate to that also (laughs) i was saying then the colored vinyl does it make
1: any difference you think well they say that actually it used to be where colored vinyl was actually noisier but now they're telling me and i don't like i said i don't i don't take them home as much they're telling me that actually these special ones that they're making now are are pretty clear they're they're almost transparent uh, but they sound good. They sound clean, quiet. So, I, I mean, things have happened that I'm not even aware of. At least the ones that are coming out, uh, we're getting test presses on the Steely Dan stuff. Uh, they look pretty good. Uh, so, uh, I, I don't know if there's a big difference anymore between the two. I mean, it used to be where, for some reason, the carbon black that they put into the vinyl, because vinyl isn't naturally black, it's, it's clear. And they put this carbon black in, and it used to be where they, it actually made it a little quieter uh, than this just raw vinyl without any color in it. And, and now when you put color in it, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the plants that made color vinyl were not good plants anyway. And so you get the wrong impression that the, since all the colored ones were coming out of these people that specialized in colored vinyl... But the plant wasn't that good. you begin to think it's maybe it's the color but it, 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 I, it, so I really don't have a definitive answer on that now, especially because of what they're doing. They're making a lot of colored vinyl here and there and oh, a uh, lot of
0: it yeah
1: yeah so I you know and I <laughs> I'm so busy just making the masters that I, I never I, I, I get a spot check here and there I get a test pressing but it's kind of hard to tell on that. Because I, I get a lot of, I don't, they usually don't send me the colored version when they send me a test pressing. A lot of times they don't. They, they have a machine that they run for just tests and it just has black vinyl in it. So I, uh, sometimes I don't even know what it's going to be like when it gets on the market. All right. My final
0: question is what do you do to protect those ears of yours? Do you do you go to loud concerts? Do you have these special earplugs you got to put in to make sure you're not going to get any ringing cuz that's a it's a precious instrument there in your head.
1: Yeah, well, I learned that when I first got in the business because uh you know, I first my first job in Hollywood was at Contemporary Records, my idol. That's that that label. I worked there for 2 years before I went to A&M. And uh we were doing uh mostly catalog work, keeping up the catalog, remastering, because they wear out. Things wear out. Mothers do, and stampers do. And uh, <clears throat> the guy that distributed a lot of different uh, record companies and so forth had a little recording studio upstairs in in his warehouse, and he was trying to get into making recordings and trying to make it that way, too. So I started moonlighting in there, uh, mixing, and uh, doing recordings, and what I discovered right away in a very short time was that everybody in the mix room in order to make them feel maybe that their recording was, or their performance was better than it was always wanted to listen loud. And, uh, I, I, I was kind of shy of that too. They would want to go loud and I would, I would play it for them. But after a while I got the, I I got to thinking, I thought, you know, I'm not going to, last long in this business. If I keep doing mixing and listening to music that loud because my left ear was already starting to act a little funny, it would close down when I would listen really loud. It would just seem to be something happening there. I thought, forget this. And that's why I actually stayed in mastering because I was developing a big reputation there people were coming in custom people from other uh, that were putting out records on other labels and having me master stuff at Contemporary. And I thought, you know, I like doing this, you know, and I stayed in it and uh, I'm still in it. And uh, I, because when you're mixing, you're gonna be with a project for a long time, maybe two, three months, sometimes longer. And, uh, you know, they like to listen loud, a lot of these guys, a lot of these producers, because it makes them feel better about their recording. And that's why I even call mastering the sobering part, because mastering is the part where when they come in, they're all a little bit timid a lot of times. It's like they've been hyping each other. Every new person that walks in the room, they turn the level up to impress them. And that's impressive in itself. But they come in and it's like, well, what do we really have? How is this going to stack up against all the other stuff out there? Now they're like, "Uh uh-oh, this is our last chance. So they, wanna, they, they don't really say a lot to me. It's like they're, they're a little bit scared about what they really have. Because you know how that is. You can turn up the level really loud and you get more. You, there's almost a kinetic thing that happens. So, uh, so that's why I've lasted that long. I don't listen loud and I don't go to loud concerts. I don't like to do that. Or I put things in my ears if I ever get caught in a place like that. I put earplugs in. No, it's not the thing. You you <laughs> don't want to you don't want to be around a lot of loud sound. So, you know, I've been able to retain that ability to hear well. You know, cuz one of my idols too, one of my uh was was a mixer actually, and and he lost he had he ended up with a lot of hearing aids and uh, both hearing aids and had a lot of problems with his ears. And a lot of musicians and a lot of people that have come in and work with me have hearing aids that are, that are, the older artists and so on that have been on sure. that have been on the road or something in these big loud concerts they've or they've hurt their ears
0: yeah no i'd think protecting your ears would be of primary importance for you and what you do and to continue enjoying what you do oh yeah Absolutely. You're, you're totally right. <laughs> good. Well, well, thank you so much. I, I hope you treat yourself to a nice espresso if it's not too late in the day now. And uh, well,
1: I already had it. I just had one. I better wait a little bit. I, I don't like oh, to do it.
0: Thank you so much, Bernie Grumman. I really okay. appreciate it. It was great talking to you. I learned a lot and uh, I hope to cross paths with you again soon.
1: Yeah, well, good. Well, it was fun talking to you too.
0: That's a wrap on episode nine of Carole Pop. Thanks again to Bernie Grundman for being so generous with his time and insights while expanding our understanding of how he makes music sound so great. Bernie Grundman mastering remains busy out in Hollywood, so look and listen for their works. Thanks as always to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Luke Carlozo who recorded the carol pop theme. Don't you want your own copy of the carol pop theme? Let me know and I'll see what I can do about it. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who is a master himself. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music,
1: movies, food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks.